Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing what is necessary to be a successful designer in a contemporary screen-based interactive world. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. In this episode, we will be discussing the education necessary for someone to become a user experience designer. We go into specifics on the different education paths open to students and what is specific to user experience design that can be applied to all forms of design, from graphic design to industrial design. Finally, we talk about the types of information gathered by the UX team and how it could be a basis to start graphic design projects. Today's guest is Rachel Lindman, leading UX design for Project Sunroof and Earth Outreach at Google. Rachel works on a diverse set of projects across the Google Maps space. She's focused on elevating high impact data atop maps, putting beautifully visualized aggregated information in the hands of scientists, policymakers, advocates, educators, and community members. Rachel has also worked at the innovative digital agency RGA, where she created better user experiences for Nike and Samsung. She's been honored to speak about her work on stage at IXDA's Interaction South America, Strelka Institute for Media, Architecture and Design, San Francisco's GIS Day, and in written form with Net Magazine and Look at Me. Welcome, Rachel. Hey, Gary. Hey. Thanks for being a guest. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So before we dive into the questions, I want to give the audience some background on why I asked you to be a guest on the show. Uh, now that it's almost going on two years of doing this podcast, I've seen a trend where the visual designer and the front-end developer unicorn isn't as prevalent in the industry as I thought. I personally see a bigger need for the visual designer slash user experience designer hybrid unicorn. Mm -hmm. And I'm also seeing a huge need for user experience design training, hence the proliferation of institutions such as the Iron Yard and, and General Assembly. Um, so, and I've also noticed that there's been no real pattern to how my previous UX guests got their training. So for example, Rachel has an education in industrial design from Carnegie Mellon University. And quite frankly, I'm surprised I'm not seeing more industrial designers entering the user experience design field. Mm -hmm. So my first question is how did your training as an industrial designer prepare you to be a user experience designer? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I first entered uh, Carnegie Mellon knowing that I wanted to uh, study industrial design. I was really interested in uh, sculpture and architecture, but I was also uh, really interested in kind of the, the technical aspects of design. And I felt like industrial design was a good marriage of those two parts. Um, once I got into uh, the industrial design curriculum and was in, uh, I think it was maybe the end of my second year um, in the industrial design program, I started to realize that these problems that we were briefed on at the beginning of, of, of projects um, really dealt with more than just a physical object. So the problem might be, you know, we're solve we're trying to build uh, uh, kitchen utensils for uh, a blind user, or we're trying to design uh, a water faucet for a particular context, like a pet store or uh, a nightclub. Like all of these things, to me, it, it felt like we were we were kind of isolating this uh, this object in this larger problem space. Um, when I would approach a problem um, that I was given in school, I would kind of outline all aspects of that problem space. And one of the aspects would be this kind of like physical artifact solution. But but oftentimes, looking kind of at the, the macro view of things, 
the solution could come in many forms, kind of like a, a multi-pronged approach to solving this problem. It might be an object, it might be an interface, it might even be um, for some of the problem spaces we were tasked with, it might even be like designing a conversation between uh, stakeholders. Um, and I, I was getting like a little bit frustrated towards the end of, of the second year of the program because I felt like we were just weren't like addressing um, the, the larger problem space. Um, and at the time I had become friends with um, uh, another uh, UX designer who, who you should who should definitely uh, interview on this show, um, Molly, Molly Nix. Um, she was my roommate at the time and she was double majoring in communication design and HCI. And we just got to talking about um, some of her uh, projects um, in the HCI space. And it, it felt to me like the, the problem spaces and the problems that they were, that they were solving in the HCI classes um, were more holistic approach, um, or sorry, they were, the, the problems that they were solving were, were broader and the approaches that they were using were more holistic. Um, and that really appealed to me. Um, I was like, finally, there, there's kind of this, this group of people, this group of designers and engineers who are thinking about um, all the ways a problem might be solved rather than kind of shoehorning a solution um, with a, a physical object. Um, so that was kind of the, the first, uh, first time uh, in my design education where I kind of thought, that, thought a little bit broader um, in terms of what uh, being a designer might mean. And maybe, it, maybe it's not just an industrial designer, maybe it's um, kind of an experienced designer who's concerned not only with the physical artifacts, um, but also uh, the, the physical environment, um, any interfaces the user might touch, um, and kind of how this all of these things might fit in into like a larger service design model. Um, so once I kind of like had that aha moment uh, around the second end of the second year, um, I started just kind of in an, on an, in an ad hoc way, um, adding these kind of elements to the solutions that I would present to my design projects. Um, one project in particular, um, junior year, I remember, um, was about kind of designing designing something that would kind of reinvigorate um, a particular neighborhood in Pittsburgh. So each team was tasked um, with kind of looking at a particular neighborhood um, that maybe had been kind of neglected on the city planning side and and could use something, some artifact or some system to, um, to make it better and, and more lively. Um, and our team you know, I think our our, the t our team that was working on this particular problem, looking at the the neighborhood of Lawrenceville and this particular block in Lawrenceville, um, we all kind of kind of came at it from this same perspective of really having the desire to holistically solve the problem and not just present kind of a, a solution uh, that was isolated to to physical artifacts. Um, and I, I just kind of kept doing that. And I kept, uh, I, I took HCI classes on the side. I, I didn't double major in HCI, but I took HCI classes on the side. I took architecture classes on the side. I think I was giving my academic advisor a headache <laughs> because she was like, these don't really like add up to anything, but okay, you can like really? back on credits. I mean, they, they would add up to stuff, but you know, um, taking, I, I would basically use all of my extra credits to like take, classes across um, architecture, well, HCI, I and urban design. Because um, I really like had the strong desire to try and like, to, to be, to tr like truly be an experienced designer um, and not just think about these solutions um, in these really like siloed, um, siloed ways. Um, yeah, so, you know, I graduated with an industrial design degree and like a business minor, but I feel like I walked away from that educational experience, like having a much greater range um, in terms of what I was used to solving, simply because I don't know, I guess I kind of like constructed my ideal design education. Mm -hmm. I mean, the industrial design program definitely laid 
a wonderful a wonderful foundation for uh, design thinking and understanding uh, the design process, understanding how to uh, get to the bottom of user needs, uh, their goals, how what you're designing kind of works um, in their daily life and in th this journey that they're going through. Um, that that structure you know, whether it's for a physical um, artifact or a building uh, or an interface, that structure um, can apply and be useful um, to really any context. So I didn't feel like I was at a disadvantage at all um, by having industrial design um, as, as my background. I actually feel like it, it kind of helped because, you know, in, in the same way that uh, if you kind of major in UX design today, you might kind of, you might kind of get like a, a narrow view of, uh, of what solutions can be. I mean, maybe, you know, you, you take a general assembly class and you're just kind of focused on, I got to get like mobile design right. I got to get responsive design right. I'm like really focused on screen. Um, but you kind of run the risk of not realizing that there's this whole ecosystem of, of solutions um, that that play with the interfaces that, that you're designing. And I think that the industrial design education that I kind of built myself, I, I built up from, um, laid like a really good uh, foundation uh, in that way. Uh, that was a really roundabout way of, of answering your question. Well, I the, the reason I was like, really, was um, my own students, I tell them to do exactly that. I said, that's awesome. I, yeah. I, I <laughs> if you can take an I, so I, anyway, I, I tell my students, that's why I was like shocked that any advisor would say what you were doing oh, was, was not yeah, and we probably, valuable. Yeah, I shouldn't say on record that like my advisor was giving me bad advice. I think she was just like surprised that, um, surprised in like the diversity of these interests. Um, I mean, I think I had a clear idea of what I was doing by taking these classes. I mean, I even took classes like in the public policy school. Mm -hmm. Uh, within within Carnegie Mellon, I was I was just taking classes that kind of uh, contributed to this this ideal type of designer that I that I thought I wanted to be, and that was and it's kind of funny because I I'm I feel like I'm getting closer to to, to that ideal uh, today. You know, at the time I I was kind of wondering myself why I signed up for a public policy class, but you know. Today, in, in my work with uh, Project Sunroof, mm -hmm. I deal with policymakers <laughs> and uh, trying to figure out what their needs are um, relative to this tool we've built. So it's starting to kind of make sense. I think at the time, I, I, was, the, I was doing the best thing I could do, which was just kind of gravitate and sign up for uh, classes that, that seemed in the direction that, that I wanted to go. Yeah, and I'm personally surprised that not more industrial designers don't end up as UX designers because I really feel like industrial design training, like the process of identifying problems, working through solutions to the problems, they they apply it very specifically to like a product, something very physical. But the process they use is it 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 goes beyond that. It could be applied to anything. Totally. And and, and so I. I'm just shocked, and this will be like the kind of like a follow-up question um, before we talk a little bit more about Project Sunroof. Is that I'm trying to think of a better way to ask this now that I've <laughs> sitting here staring okay. at the question. Um, so, graphic design or visual design doesn't use that investigation that happens in the industrial design process. So. I, and I, I'm going to get a bunch of people saying, yes, we do. We do it all the time. And I'm going to argue that they don't. But that that aside, um, how much like how much of that industrial design training do you think is relevant to a visual graphic designer or visual or, or graphic designer, whatever you want to use that term? Yeah, I mean, that investigation that I learned in the foundation year of industrial design, in my industrial design education, mm -hmm. 
I, and and that, that same uh, investigation I feel like is prevalent in UX design. It's hard for me to separate like what what I what I think should happen with with like what does happen. I guess I I think if I I mean if I were purely a graphic designer, and I think that I think that graphic designers do do this. It might not, it just might not manifest itself in in the artifacts and uh, outputs that we use um, or that industrial designers uh, use. I think there is like an investigation um, that's going on. It's a it's a lot about kind of observing people and observing how people um, move through the world or um, kind of solve problems in an ad hoc way um, themselves, looking for opportunities to to make that experience like more seamless. And that could come making that experience more seamless could come from uh, you know designing better signage, designing a, a more engaging uh, um, ad campaign. That, and I think that investigation can still happen if, if you're a visual designer or a graphic mm-hmm. designer. Traditionally, when in graphic design, we're like, okay, here's a rock concert. You need to you need to make a poster. Right. And or it's a conference and you need to make a promotional poster or, you know, there's this there's always this like, here's the problem. Here's a solution. Now visually design the solution. Right. So there's no investment or understanding of that solution beyond just aesthetics. Yes. Industrial design, the process of industrial design doesn't allow that because you don't approach it that we need to, we need to make a, we need to make a, um, a potato peeler. No, the problem is we need to help elderly (laughs) do this task and then you decide what it ends up being. And so I'm curious on your thoughts of like, how would you think, how should graphic design educators um, or visual design educators, how should they apply that industrial design? But it's also user experience. I look at it as user experience training. Yeah. So industrial designers and uh, UX designers come at things from a problem first task mm-hmm. first approach um, we have to make sure that what we're designing is the most efficient the most usable there's going to be uh, user research to understand those problems thoroughly in the beginning and there's going to be usability testing uh, before launch to make sure what we're putting out into the world is, is truly um, doing the best job um, at solving that problem or making that task easier um, I think that there, there in in visual design and graphic design, um, there's this room for personal aesthetic, mm-hmm. and uh, part of part of your job it's not only to communicate this information um, about this concert, like the example you gave, but it's to add kind of an artistic um, take on on that information mm-hmm. um which i think is amazing and uh i in, in many ways like like envy uh, graphic designers and visual designers for being able to have that kind of like creative license in combination with um the solving the user problem of, of conveying this information um I think that because industrial design and UX design is so rooted in uh, in, in measuring how efficient something is, how um, effective um, the interface is, um, it's it's hard for us to take that same kind of uh, creative license mm-hmm. um, and and take those same kind of risks. At the end of the day, um, in most cases, success is measured by you know, is the is the user able to get their the task done um, in the best way possible, uh, in the most seamless way possible, um, with the least amount of friction? Um, that's how success is measured for us, um, and I think it's true for industrial designers as well. Um, you know, obviously in industrial design, there is still some, there is room for um, creative expression. And in UX design, you could argue that like game design is um, kind of all about straddling this line. Um, 
and then I think industrial design as well, you know, I, I have a chair in my apartment that, you mm-hmm. know, probably isn't like uh, the, the most durable, uh, most uh, effective chair I, I could own, but I love the way it looks and it makes me happy. Um, and so maybe in, in that way, it's, it has solved, um, it has solved one of my user problems. Um, yeah, it just kind of gets into it. You get in kind, of, in kind of this like gray area um, of wanting to to help the user accomplish a task or feel a certain way. Um, but also part of your job as a graphic designer, a visual designer is, is sharing your own personal perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what makes, uh, makes it interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I just... And I, I dabbled around uh, a colleague of mine. Her background was in graphic design, but she also had a background in architecture. And so she, so architecture has a lot of that similar, you know, problem solving process that industrial design has before it gets off into the like, hey, this building actually has to support weight mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> before it gets into the nuts and bolts. And, and in the class, we made the students just go investigate a problem long before they would even talk about how we're going to visually design it. And the the results from that class were just substantially better visually mm-hmm. because the, the more they were informed, the more, uh, yes, they were taking artistic license, but with a purpose. Yeah. So, it, it, so there was that difference between let's just, you know, have artistic license but our artistic license that's really like it's trying to get at something and i just think that the that ux um leads to that and that's why i really want um visual or graphic design programs to start like incorporating more ux um yeah yeah, it'd be awesome if at the beginning of uh, every project uh, in graphic design program, uh, you know, you're tasked with doing that initial user research to understand the the problem space that you're uh, about to about to tackle. I and I literally was thinking about that today, as I was thinking about you know what I'm going to be teaching in the fall, um, and so I didn't have a chance to like pre give you this question so i apologize but okay in and you can use google as an as an example or you can use wherever you've done this before is that information that user research that that you were talking about just now is that handed off to the visual designer or so how do they get about it and so i'm wondering and so i'm thinking to myself it would the ideal would be to make my actual make my my graphic design students actually do that research, but there's only so many credit hours in a program, so I was wrestling with would it be, it, it, while not as good, but would it be equally effective and also indicative of what's happening in the industry if I gave them a more detailed user research brief, you know, to start the project. Hopefully that just made sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, some of the you're right. So there's there's only so many hours in the day, and uh, we do have to uh, kind of segment what we work on in order to to get things done. Um, there have been cases, um, and and we if people have time, we try to encourage this where um, anybody from the product team can sit in on uh, user research sessions, um, or if if um, they get trained, kind of conduct um, some of the, the initial interviews. That's awesome. That I mean, mm-hmm. as much as that can happen, um, that's ideal. Um, I think that you know. The majority of the time, there might not be um, bandwidth for people to to engage in that way. Um, so typically, what we do, um, whether I've done the initial research or a um, UX researcher has done the initial research, um, we create a summary of that research and. Uh, present it to the full product team so that everybody understands what the results were, understands where the really critical pain points were, um, and the opportunity areas for um, our product to solve. Um, 
and if, if possible, um, you know, we can show kind of our raw study notes so they can see in more detail, you know, user quotes um, or anything that'll kind of help them empathize um, with the users that are kind of going through um, this task. Um, and so I think an initial deep dive um, at the start of any, um, any, sorry, I think an initial deep dive of the, the user research at the beginning of the design process mm -hmm. for a feature or a product um, is really useful. Um, you know, if you can't be there in person, uh, you you still need to be kind of immersed in, in the findings. And you, I think often like it, pulling out quotes is like really powerful, you know, not pulling out all the quotes that you gathered from the study, but really key quotes that speak um, concisely to these pain points that users are having, those can be really powerful. Um, and then if you do that, um, with uh, with the process in mind that you're going to craft personas mm -hmm. around some of these um, these pain points that you discovered, some of these uh, these users might even be the inspiration for uh, personas that you create. Um, that becomes like even more of a vehicle for like evangelizing what you're what you're kind of going for. Um, yeah, we did a persona exercise um, a couple months ago um, with our engineering team. And it's funny, like, uh, you know, they're not real people. They're personas that, that we made up. They're kind of... Um, kind of aggregated, aggregated people um, that, that uh, speak to the, the goals and uh, pain points that these users have. But the engineers um, and, and everybody on the team, I do it too, um, kind of talk about these personas like, you know, uh, Becky like would never do that or like, <laughs> does this really, does this really uh, solve um, for, for Jane's problem? Um, which I think is great because it gives you, even though it's not truly a real person, it gives you, um, it gives you empathy um, in the same way having a real person um, in mind would. Um, yeah. No, I think that's super important. And, and that's one of the things that I noticed the work greatly improved because I did where I made my students create a persona and when then we were when we're critiquing their their design, we can I can easily say, well, what does your persona think? I got a hunch this isn't going this is this isn't visually going to appeal to them. And it's it's a good reality check and, and way to like make them think critically about, you know, what they're what they're trying to do. Totally. And like whenever possible, we uh, we print out these posters that have kind of the persona's photo and their needs and goals and maybe a few uh, quotes from the persona. We print these out and put mm -hmm. them around uh, our, our workspace. So they're, you know, always like top of mind uh, when we're designing the product. Well, those are great little design exercise, visual design exercises within themselves for the students to do. Yeah, too, is, totally. Okay, you did the research. Now design it. So. <laughs> Killing yeah. two birds with one stone. So I'm going to ask then, so for the past year, you um, have led the UX design for Project Sunroof and Geo for Good, both of which sit in the Maps product area of Google. Can you, you know, uh, give a very brief overview of some of these projects for the listeners? But And also, but more specifically, what uh, does a UX designer do on these projects and what does the visual designer or graphic designer do if they are actually a part of the team and specifically like maybe start off with project sunroof sure um so project sunroof um is uh an effort that lives within geo for good or um kind of as it's uh called sometimes earth outreach um, Project Sunroof lives within this family, um, and actually, I'll, I'll explain kind of Geo for Good because that'll kind of like help orient Project Sunroof in the in the realm of uh, Google Maps. Um, so Geo for Good or, or Earth Outreach, um, as we also call it, um, is within the the Geo um, Maps um, product area of Google. Um, but it occupies this really unique space, this really kind of like amazing space where um, we're using um, our great Google data and information um, in combination with um, partners, nonprofits, scientists, um, 
using their um, their data to to tell these really powerful stories about um, issues that uh, that we all kind of care about. And solar is one example. Um, other uh, kind of verticals that that we work on, we work on oceans. So uh, Global Fishing Watch um, kind mm-hmm. of came out of this like oceans vertical that exists within Earth Outreach. Um, but really, the goal is to like empower users um, and often their um, kind of third party nonprofits, empower them with the data we have um, to, to help them do um, and communicate uh, the way they need to in order to like uh, make these um, these issues known, um, to share information with others, to um, empower policymakers um, to make better decisions. Um, so really just putting um, the information in the hands of people who will take it that next step further, um, making sure that information is um, as clear as possible so they can use it as a tool for good. Um, so Project Sunroof sits within this family, um, within Earth Outreach, and uh, it was born out of um, actually a, what we call a 20% project, so like a side project. Yeah. Project Sunroof was born out of a side project um, of a of an engineer based out of the Cambridge office uh, named Carl Elkin. Um, and he, he had kind of, you know, he'd been working on this and he really thought that um, it had uh, had legs and could be kind of a fully staffed uh, product. Um, this idea that we could use um, our great uh, satellite imagery um, in combination with some other data sets in order to really accurately tell users um, about the solar potential of their own roof. Um, a process that, um, you know, in, until Project Sunroof existed, meant that you had to hire somebody to come up to your roof, um, take measurements, um, and and pay them money to, to do all of this, and it would take some time. Um, so he thought this process could be uh, made a lot more seamless um, and could really remove some of those barriers to entry that exist um, or existed in uh, the, the solar, going solar process. Um, so what Project Sunroof uh, tries to do um, is, is address the needs of several user groups. Um, so homeowners, of course, um, we have our homeowner tool um, where you're able to um, enter your address um, and see the solar potential um, of your home. Um, and we've simplified kind of the, the financial information, the financial options that you have within the state that you searched um, for. Uh, we simplify uh, kind of the the metrics um, that you might be curious about, and if you're if you're wondering, you know, if I if my electric bill is this per month, um, how much um, could I potentially save um, by going solar? Really aggregating this information that previously um, was was really in disparate places, um, and the user would have to go hunting for all of this information. And, and there's also a problem of uh, you know, is this information that I'm looking at um, across the web is it as it reliable? I'm not sure. It's hard to tell. So we're trying to remove a lot of those uh, friction points, aggregate this information so that it was really simple for users to understand whether going solar was right for them. Um, make that process a lot easier. So those, that's the homeowner tool. Um, and we recently launched, or I guess the end of last year, we launched um, the Data Explorer, mm-hmm. which is really geared toward uh, those more expert users um, that care about the the larger solar potential of, of geographic regions. Um, so that could be, um, you know, a state, a zip code, um, a, a county, a city, um, any any large uh, geographic uh, swath of area. Um, that's been a really powerful tool for uh, policymakers, for solar advocates, for scientists, um, and really anybody who's kind of in, invested in or interested in the solar potential of, of their larger um, community. Um, so those are kind of the two uh, target uh, groups, or sorry, yeah, the two target groups um, that the Sunroof site uh, reaches today. Um, but there, there are pro- there are probably even more users that I'm I'm not listing. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll we'll get responses or, or emails from from users who are using these tools in ways we really didn't even think of, like um, the Data Explorer. Um, you know, it's 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 used to uh, show uh, solar potential information. 
information um, to like city council members who might not be familiar with a city's solar potential. You know, you we didn't quite think through like the, oh this this site will actually be used as a tool for users to present to other users to explain uh, the solar potential of their area in like a city council meeting. I mean that's that's kind of amazing that this can be like a teaching tool um, that users are going out um, and uh, and using for that purpose. Um, let's see, we also have uh, made our great sunroof data for homeowners um, accessible in the search experience. Mm -hmm. um, so if you search, um, if you have a query kind of related to uh, is solar right for me or um, uh, something around solar panels, uh, you'll get um, kind of an elevated search result um, where you're able to kind of have that same sort of homeowner sunroof site experience, but in your search experience. So being able to enter in your address there and see um, a financial breakdown um, in line, not even having to, to leave search, which is really great for that initial research phase um, that people go through where you're probably looking at a lot of sites, you're looking at solar providers in your area. Um, so we really wanted to kind of uh, help users in that moment um, of research as well. So where does the where do you as a UX designer fit into into that whole spectrum and <laughs> visual designers if there are any? Yeah, so um, I'm the the UX lead for Project mm -hmm. Sunroof um, and uh, Geo for Good uh, Earth Outreach, um, and my my role is uh, I feel like I wear a lot of hats. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a, it's a large space. Um, for, for Project Sunroof, um, it really means working incredibly close with um, our PM and our eng leads um, to, to scope out um, these ideas we have from the very beginning to initiate research that we might want to do to understand these user problems further. Um, we have a really tight working relationship. Um, there's yeah, I, I think it's it's a, it's an effective relationship. There aren't uh, really kind of siloed uh, roles in in the sense that you know the PM is like, okay, this is my job, this is your job. I think we're kind of doing product definition um, together, which um, so far has been really effective and enjoyable. Um, what else? Um, for Earth Outreach, um, that's kind of a unique. Uh, position because you know we're we're Google and we have kind of our perspective and our um, PMs and our UX designers and engineers, but we're kind of building tools um, and interfaces in partnership with uh, with these third party organizations, be it, uh, you know, in the case of Global Fishing Watch, um, which I worked on, um, we were working with uh, Oceana and uh, Sky Truth and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. You know, we're working with these, these third parties um, and we wanna make sure that we're still delivering um, like a Google caliber experience to the user. Um, but knowing that this kind of standalone tool has its own identity and has um, and it has its own identity because it's made in partnership with these other organizations. Um, so that's been, that's been a little different than, you know, building a tool that's completely owned by Google, um, like Project Sunroof is. Um, the, the projects that we work on across um, across um, Earth Outreach can kind of vary um, in the way that they um, manifest um, just because they're done in partnership with other organizations. So it means that my role as a UX designer kind of shifts depending on what those other um, partner organizations uh, bring to the table um, and how they would like to, to implement um, a tool or um, put information out into the world. I don't know if I read it in an article or, or you mentioned it, but um, can you talk a little bit more about it? You said, I really love this quote from the Earth Outreach Director, uh, Rebecca Moore. And the quote was, I really believe that when people have the information, when everyone in society is empowered with this information, people will make better decisions. I think we can change how we live on this planet. I really believe we can. Can you tell me what, like from a UX perspective, how can you empower that quote, I guess? 
yeah um yeah i added that that quote Mm -hmm. um in there because i uh i think i look back at it um rebecca is the director of um the geo for good um, earth outreach team um and i think that quote speaks to um, kind of our, our ultimate goal in Project Sunroof and Global Fishing Watch and in, in all the projects we do um, in, in this product area. Um, you know, we we have this um, this this great information. Um, we have all of these resources uh, being Google, um, and I think that everyone on our on our team kind of feels this. Uh, responsibility to use this um, this data in the best way possible um, to use this data for good, um, and I think Rebecca um, that that quote from Rebecca speaks to that um, completely. You know, if we've if we've done our job, um, then we've given tools and clear information to the people who will will go off and make these great changes. Um, so, you know, the the person, uh, you know, the, the local um, the local politician who finds the data explorer and is able to like understand the solar potential of um, the the area that they that they represent, um, and they're able to kind of go forward um, with that information in hand, um, that information that is um, easy to understand because we've designed it well, um, that information that is uh, easily uh, shared um, because we've designed uh, the experience well. Um, that's like the the ultimate success is if um, if our users can go forward and and use this information for like a greater good or contribute um, to to this like larger effort. Um, As the need for user experience designers grows and the profession becomes more defined, because I think that's where it's going. It's it's becoming more defined. Do you see a bigger need for four-year universities and colleges to create specific UX design programs? Or do you think graphic design programs simply incorporating key UX concepts is enough? Um, it's a great question. Um, I, I looked recently at how uh, Carnegie Mellon had mm-hmm. kind of redesigned their curriculum to, I think, to, to address part of this problem. Um, you know, thinking of designers as uh, broadly designers and kind of teaching them, structuring a curriculum that will, will teach and, and empower designers to um, tackle a wide variety of problems, I think is really valuable. You know, I, having a curriculum that just kind of deals with um, the the interactions that we're familiar with today, the, the screens that we're familiar with today, having a, a curriculum that just concentrates on that, I don't think does, um, I don't think it would be doing its due diligence mm-hmm. uh, for the students. Uh, simply because, you know, once the students graduate, you know, they start the program four years later or however many years later they, they graduate um, and, and the paradigms have, have been shifted and uh, the interactions that we're, we're used to um, have, have evolved. Um, and if, if all you've kind of designed for is, you know, this, this mobile first, you know, very, you know, it's very now, it's, it, it is what will kind of get you a, a job in that moment. Um, but we haven't kind of asked these critical questions about um, experiences of the future. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that, sorry. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> I kind of like talking in circles, but um, I think that, what needs to be instilled is this mentality. I mean, it seems like you kind of do this with your students, this mentality that if you're um, a, a great designer, then you have this this curious mind, this, this mind that wants to kind of investigate all sorts of problems um, and is not constrained to a, a medium. Um, so, you know, the solution, like we said, could be um, in the form of um, a, a mobile app, um, but 
being comfortable with the idea that the solution could also come from designing um, a physical experience, mm -hmm. um, like an augmented experience. Um, that that's okay. And I think that the only way that it's like there's no there's no good way to to totally prepare students for um, the experiences of four years from now. Um, but I think the best we can do is. Um, teach them and kind of instill this like flexibility of thinking um, that will allow them to apply this uh, design, this effective design process and investigation process to a wide range of, of problems. All right. So we're getting a little bit close on time. So I only have two more uh, questions to ask you. And um, so this next one, uh, so this is going to be a recurring question that I'll be asking all my, my guests. So again, I'm coming from the, I teach in a graphic design program. Uh, and one problem I continually see in student portfolios is an inability for them to not make design decisions based on their own personal aesthetic. So no matter how hard an educator tries, students will always default to designing to their own personal aesthetic. So organically, is there a process, a UX process that, you know, um, graphic design students should be using to kind of help them break from that designing for themselves, but still keep that, you know, give them some artistic license, but ground it, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it would be really interesting to use the same kind of user testing uh, methods that we use in, in UX design for something like graphic design, like putting a bunch of options that students have designed in front of uh, people that are kind of not close to that work or mm -hmm. who do fit um, kind of the persona um, of, of, the, of the project. Um, I think that would be... Uh, that would be really enlightening um, to to have uh, to have these real users kind of respond to um, these these visual approaches that the graphic design students are um, are creating. Um, you know, I, I think nothing nothing kind of answers the question more than um, a kind of a direct uh, quote or a direct response from a real person who is not a designer, who's actually somebody who would use the information um, or engage with this piece. Uh, you can't really, you can't really dismiss the fact that somebody finds information unclear or they're turned off by um, they're turned off by the way the information is presented. Um, I think that would be uh, really valuable to, to kind of to borrow some of those um, user research and user test testing methods in the graphic design space. Um, well, I think that would be really, I mean, let me see if I'm pair. I'm going to try to paraphrase to see if I'm, I'm getting it, but a lot of rapid prototyping and testing. So create a bunch of designs, the prototype, and put them in front of the audience to see if they're actually working the way you, you, you think they're going to work. And so if, if that's the case, that's actually hugely beneficial, especially early on, because how do you get better at doing something, doing it a lot? <laughs> so Yeah, totally. So throwing a bunch of things out there to see, you know, and, and then to get the gain, the feedback from it will really help. So is that kind of what you're? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, uh, fail early and often yeah. is something that, that we say a lot around here. Um, and I think that applies to, uh, to anything you're trying to solve, you know, but better to get a lot of options um, in front of people, get their response, understand if it's really being as clear as you, as you want it to be. Was it really achieving the, the goal that you had in mind? Um, and then responding to that, you know, I think that's a constant cycle here is, you know, we're, we're not designing in a vacuum. Um, we're, we're designing for people and, and people um, re respond to our work um, in any number of ways, but, but we need to, we need to see that and understand it and empathize with it. Okay. So Rachel, um, before I let you go, is there anything that you are working on personally that you would like to share or is there something you want to promote or is there anything that I forgot to ask that you think we need to, <laughs> you're like, darn it, he didn't ask it. 
Um, anything I want to promote? I mean, yeah. I, our team is really excited about um, this data explorer tool mm -hmm. um, within the Project Sunroof site. Um, I think it's a great uh, a great tool for you know individuals like ourselves to show to our local politicians um, and and share this information with them that has been made uh, kind of really clear and really easy to use. Um, I'm super excited to to see how um, um, users um, of all types, experts and non-experts, um, use this tool down the line because um, it is really one of those things that not only uh, teaches the individual user that's looking at it in that moment, but can be this um, this tool for um, exponential good. Um, so if, yeah, if you haven't checked it out, uh, definitely go to the Project Sunroof site um, and and explore that. Explore the homeowner tool. Um, both of which are, um, are really great. So that's all we have time for today on episode 43 of Design EDU Today. I want to thank today's guest, Rachel Lindman, for being so generous with her time. I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. I also want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you like this podcast, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes store and share it with your colleagues and friends. To discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with the new show releases, you can follow us on Twitter at DesignEDU Today, like the Facebook page, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. Finally, if you would like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback to help improve the show, contact me through Twitter or the show's email address at hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to DesignEDU Today. <laughs>